podcast, where we explore the backgrounds of interesting individuals and how they intersect with our building industry in Iowa. I'm your host, Ben Hammes, and I'm going to bring to you topics that help educate, develop, grow, and enhance you and your company. All right. Hey, John. Thanks for joining us today on the MBI Edge. Good morning, Ben. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Welcome to the building. Yeah, I think it's beautiful. Uh, you should be giving uh, tours all the time around here. It's yeah. really great. Yeah. You uh, joined us for the Breakfast Club this morning, our Breakfast Club we've been having every other month. Um, we asked John uh, to come in and uh, give us kind of an update because we had him six months ago at our winter conference, uh, and they've just been doing incredible work. So let's talk about that first. Why don't you give the uh, folks an introduction? Yeah, you bet. Um, so um, I've got a background in research and uh, in the OR, and so uh, I was seeing these really remarkable things with a few surgeons were doing in the operating room, which was really optimizing a patient before the procedure even began, and that translated to a dramatic improvement in the recovery period. It's this research called Enhanced Recovery After Surgery, E-R-A-S. Frankly, I don't really, uh, not thrilled with the name because it implies it's after surgery when a lot of this is preparing before the operation begins. And when you do that, people just have dramatic um, improvement in their post-op uh, experience. They get back to work faster. And what's really relevant to what we're going to be discussing today is you just need far, far fewer opioids. So everything's kind of moving in the right direction with this upgrade, upgraded protocols. So for years and years, we've been told um, for a number of reasons that we discussed this morning, opioids are the way. Your company and your efforts are to change that perception. I'm sure that's really easy in the healthcare world. Yeah, you know, doctors love to be told that uh, they should be doing something different. So uh, right. actually what is interesting is that the physicians are, have been very supportive of it for the most part. It's just a lot of times that, that there's coordination uh, that are difficult to overcome in our healthcare system. You know, it can be bureaucratic in and of itself. And, and when we uh, are able to help them with a, some very well-established research and uh, make it very simple for the surgeons and for the providers. They've, they've been very supportive of it. Now, John works for a company called Goldfinch Health. I should have announced that at the beginning, but it, we're, we're new at this, so we're figuring <laughs> it out. But more importantly, what you were here to talk about this morning was uh, an effort called the Billion Pill Pledge. Talk to me about that. You bet. So, uh, yeah, so our, our traditional business with um, Goldfinch Health is to help self-insured employers uh, – advocate for their patients who are uh, going into surgery to get these protocols and to get the nurse support. But uh, as we uh, started to see the opioid settlement starting to be paid out to the states, we kind of said, well, let's cut the middleman out here and let's go right to the state and use some of these funds to uh, help the hospitals overcome some of the traditional hurdles. You've how, got many, to, how many dollars are we talking here? Well, across the country, there's gonna, they're estimating uh, $60 billion dollars. Um, going towards tackling the epidemic. And that's just a drop in the bucket as to what it's really impacted lives and our, our country and our healthcare system. But it is a good start and a really unique opportunity to, to do something, to change stigma, to change prescribing habits, to, to change uh, law enforcement, uh, um, and, and really help members in the throes of addiction, or people in the throes of addiction. And how many of those dollars are coming to Iowa? So Iowa, uh, they're estimating about $320 million. It needs to go towards prevention, treatment, and recovery. And they uh, wrote the, um, the settlements in a way that it cannot be used like the tobacco settlements where it can go towards, you know, uh, police cruisers or just goes into the general fund. In fact, 85% of those funds have to be spent on opioid mitigation, meaning 
treatment, prevention, and recovery of the opioid in the opioid epidemic. Which is what you're specifically doing, so. Correct, and that's that's where the billion pill pledge kind of comes in. Is that this is a true first dose prevention strategy. So uh, this isn't necessarily this isn't directly impacting overdose deaths. This isn't uh, preventing the uh, uh, the um, challenges that a patient in the throes of addiction may face. Um, this is really way upstream when people first get exposed to opioids. In fact. Um, uh, in this day and age, we see that there's over 3 billion leftover opioids after surgery each year, that this is a number one gateway or a top gateway for addiction, roughly, depending on the literature, 6 to 9% of people who have surgery become persistent opioid users. And it's really still a remnant of the Purdue and the Sackler family marketing the heck out of America that opioids are the good stuff, and that's just not the reality. They spent uh, $200 million dollars just in 2001 alone in convincing America that we needed opioids for pain relief. Uh, it's, it's, it's really sinister. And ultimately why these opioid settlement funds uh, were paid out because there were a lot of groups complicit in perpetuating that misinformation. And patients and people are, are subjected to it. And, and the other thing that's a challenge with um, even opioid prescriptions is that they still impact and drive persistent use in fact, 80% of heroin users uh, and ostensibly fentanyl users, were, that data is still being played out, but they got started with the prescription for opioids, and a lot of that could be diverted pills or the prescription that you got in the first place. You mentioned the Sackler family. I watched uh, an eye-opening mockumentary on, on Hulu called Dope Sick. Um, that was the first time I had even heard of the Sackler family or the impact uh, and what had happened, I think, if I remember right, in Appalachia. Um, I highly encourage our listeners to go watch Dope Sick. It is an incredible, incredible show that details explicitly what happened in pushing these types of prescriptions. It was incredible. That's a great uh, show. And it's interesting because I've had a lot of people ask me if that was a true story. And while it's dramatized, I personally know someone who represents every portion of that of that article or of that uh, uh, show. I know doctors that have been addicted to opioids that have lost their licenses. Uh, I know patients that have, um, you know, taken opioids to be able to get back to work. And then you all, then you aren't performing as well at work. So you lose your job and now you've got an addiction and no job. It's really, uh, you know, was the, it's the crime of the century. And we have a chance though, optimistically though, to, to change that, to, to right these wrongs. Uh, with these settlements, and that's a real uh, great opportunity we have in front of us. I want to go back to the responses and some of the conversations you're having with these doctors and these hospitals. Like I mentioned at the Breakfast Club this morning, six months ago, the map that you showed me of Iowa was pretty uh, pretty bare in terms of who you'd been working with, and then here we are six months later, and that map has exploded in terms of the number of hospitals and doctors that are working with you in changing their procedures. But... What is the hesitation? What I can understand ego, especially with, you know, I can't imagine uh, how big my head would be if I was a surgeon. If I made it that far, if I had gone through that level of education and became the surgeon, I'd done things one way for my patients, right, rightfully thinking I'm doing the right thing. But how, what it what what are the challenges facing them in, in changing that uh, the way they operate? 
Yeah, no, that's a great question. It's a really important one, and and more. I, I don't. I uh, I think it's more that uh, it's not it's not surgeons' egos. It's they are extremely busy, mm. uh, and so you know there is some hesitation. I think for change because in healthcare, if you're changing, that means that a person is absorbing that change. You don't want to experiment because it's not uh, you know you don't get a do overs. Um, and so I think more so what it is is that doctors are extremely busy. And to mm. change something is to introduce variability. Mm. Uh, and so for them to say, hey, if I'm going to say write less opioids, uh, then I'm going to get more phone calls for pain. And I frankly don't have time as it is. I don't have the nursing staff to do it as is. And who's out here coordinating it? So it's, uh, it's not as though there aren't some individuals that um, uh, you know, have egos that may uh, get in the way. But the vast majority of surgeons go into healthcare because they want to help people out. Sure. And now we're really uh, just trying to help ameliorate that burden and, and make those changes and, and provide them really the support to make changes and then and show them how much better these outcomes really are. I just criticized a bunch of surgeons and called out their egos, so I can't. No, well, let's, see, let's see how that it's, goes. Uh, it's, a, it's a trope that uh, has some <laughs> basis in that truth. <laughs> um, you know, the, the work that you're doing, though, um, from the goldfish side, you know, talk to us about that approach. You you. Again, this morning you just explained the difference between the the larger issue of the billion pill pledge, but talk to us about Goldfinch's approach. Yeah, you bet. So, you know, Goldfinch uh, uh, co-founded uh, five years ago with um, a friend from college who's a, a farm D. Uh, because I was in the OR for a decade training physicians on minimally invasive approaches to surgery, things like robotics. Um, but I was seeing a few physicians do these protocols, and the results were, frankly, remarkable. They were going above and beyond for the patients, and frankly, you didn't really know that they were doing that as a patient. You just kind of got lucky. And actually, I lost uh, an uncle to a hospital-borne infection after his hip replacement. He did not get this ERAS protocol. Uh, and then two years later to the same week, my dad needed his hip replaced, and he was a much more vulnerable patient because he was on blood thinner and... Um, was uh, not at a major teaching institution, um, but I was able to advocate on his behalf to get some of these small changes based on this great literature and, and this uh, great teachings I'd heard from these providers I'd been working with, and it was remarkable, the difference. He was climbing the stairs the day after his operation. He needed no opioids whatsoever, and at five weeks, he was back with his dog uh, out pheasant hunting uh, the last weekend of the year in January. So just the night and day contrast between what that meant to a family. And we also have opioid addiction in our, fa in our family as well. So seeing the contrast and seeing uh, overprescribing and people just frankly get an outdated approach towards surgery, uh, you know, compelled uh, us to found Goldfinch, where we go traditionally to self-insured employers and insurance companies, and we help patients going through surgery with nurse support, with advocacy around these uh, protocols we'll get into here in a second. And then postoperatively, after your operation, we kind of send patients home and say, good luck, we'll see you in two weeks, here's a bunch of opioids. And that's frankly when a lot of the, that's when a lot of the challenges arise that can be addressed. Uh, there's a lot, there was, we were doing some research that showed roughly 40% of all healthcare spend occurs in the 90 days after the procedure begins. Not just the operation, but after that procedure, that's when a lot of costs, and what are those costs representing? People having a tough time in their recovery. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about those protocols. One of the, f you know, we, um, we've always been told um, 
don't eat or drink before surgery. Let's start there. You bet. So there, if there's one edict, if there's one maxim, you can't have anything to eat or drink after surgery. And frankly, it's really bad advice to give to a patient. The problem is you can't have food before your surgery, but what the American Society of Anesthesiologists actually recommends, that's the, that's the foremost body on the subject, they say you can have a clear carbohydrate beverage up to two hours prior to operation. We know that for a normal healthy stomach, that that's out of your stomach in about 90 minutes. So two to four hours prior gives you a good window um, because the problem is, is if you don't have anything to eat or drink, you are dehydrated. That means you have a lower pain threshold. You're probably a little bit uh, hangry or you're uncomfortable. And at a cellular level, things are going on where uh, you may not even recognize called insulin resistance, which has a lot of problems, uh, but it inhibits your ability to process sugars, therefore to heal the day you've never needed it more. And so the don't eat or drink is really about avoiding aspiration. So we want to be very clear that the guidelines are not you can have something to eat or drink. They're not. They're much more nuanced. A clear drink like a Gatorade, no closer than two hours prior to your operation, has been shown to dramatically improve outcomes. In fact, when Harvard studied this, they gave their joint replacement patients a Gatorade, and they found they left the hospital an entire day sooner. So that matters. You're a third of the way faster to recovery. They did more physical therapy. They were less dizzy. All these things that matter, especially if your procedure is not at 8 a.m. But again, the concern is a patient is going to have is not going to be compliant. Uh, But we've been teaching the don't eat or drink since the 1940s when we're still using ether as in, uh, you know, for your anesthesia. So let's update those as well to this more nuanced instructions. And organizations like the University of Iowa have, um, they call liberalized their NPO, or they have gone to the fact that you can have something to drink as long as it's clear you can't have milk, you can't have creamer in your coffee. Don't go eat a pile of lasagna Correct. before surgery. You, not, the night before, that's great, but the morning of, uh, get a Gatorade. Or in our case, what we do is we actually provide patients with a drink specifically designed to be taken the morning of their operation. And we, we treat it as though it's medicine because, frankly, it is. Having that, that clear carbohydrate drink or that, that uh, Gatorade or that CF pre-op is what it's called, clear fast pre-op is a really critical part of optimizing a patient before that procedure even begins. So when you um, kind of anticipate some of the challenges and and address them before they begin, people just bounce back so much faster. So let's go to step two. You've uh, got a rotator cuff surgery. You've drank your clear drink. Um, You've been in anesthesia. You've been knocked out. Knife hits you. You wake up. Now what are you recommending? Well, even before we do that, uh, I want to go even before the procedure even begins. There's a really important part called preoperative multimodal analgesia. So a very complicated word that, like a lot of things in healthcare, they make it more complicated than it is. (laughs) It's a very simple concept. Multiple methods of non-addictive pain medications. So instead of, as Ben, you're alluding to, is after the operation, we give you opioids, and we say, we'll see you in two weeks for your follow-up visit, uh, let, we anticipate that you're going to be in some pain after surgery. You've just had your shoulder uh, repaired or you've had your knee replaced. So let's anticipate it. When we use the analogy, get ahead of the pain, stay out of the pain, let's take it to its natural conclusion before the procedure even begins. That's getting ahead of the pain. Now, that, not when you wake up from consciousness are you in pain. Your body is responding to this, to the scalpel hitting your skin with a five-alarm fire. 
So we talk about before the procedure even begins, some very simple, very um, inexpensive medications. We joke about a little TLC, when it stands for Tylenol. Of course, that's for kind of on your central nervous system. Lyrica, which, um, or another drug called gabapentin, that helps quiet your nerves. And, uh, and then another one called Celebrex, which is like ibuprofen, but it has a unique characteristic in that it does not interfere with your bleeding risk. So you can kind of have your cake and eat it too. You do a, then during the procedure, they can do a block, like a Novocaine-like injection that lasts for up to a couple of days. We do some expectation setting that we don't want you to be at a zero on the pain score because we want you to be aware of your body. And then some heat and ice. And I've talked about five or six different things. Not one of those is an opioid. But if you do need an opioid after your operation, you can still have it. But we're just finding people need far, far fewer opioids because we've anticipated the pain. We've anticipated that you might get nauseous uh, after your operation, which is very, very common. And so we've treated it before it began. And that's how people respond so much better. And the results? The results are, uh, we kind of talk about 30, 50, 90, a 30% improvement in discharge, a 50% reduction in readmissions. And what we're finding is that a 90% reduction in the need for opioids. In fact, this allows the surgeons, we're finding are writing 79% fewer number of opioids for patients, and the refills are cut by something like 75%. So we're seeing a readmission and refill rate of less than 1.5%. So it's dramatic improvement over kind of the traditional literature. Because, again, we're separating what the Sackler family and the Purdue Pharmaceuticals wanted us to do, which is kind of our current approach. And we're relying on really great science and kind of some updates in understanding how to treat pain, how to address it. And when you get a 20, you know, 20... Uh, 2024 version of surgery it's really remarkable frankly it's it's a modern miracle uh when we can kind of step away step away from the traditional approach and get a modern approach the results are are, are dramatic we're talking um about solutions for our workforce let's draw it all back to the industry and the listeners um clearly getting people back to work faster is in everybody's interests both the employee the employer what are you seeing um for companies that have embarked on this that have I don't want to say mandate or but they've encouraged this yeah. I mean talk to us about the getting back to work piece yeah so that's a really important question especially in the building trades where you're you you can't sit at a computer all day you know it's a very physical job oftentimes and so being able to get back on the uh, uh, to the workforce uh, is critical sometimes you even have to get back to the workforce even to qualify for the benefits to have the surgery so it's, it's really um, kind of uh, a, a double-edged sword sometimes or, or uh, 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 multiple challenges for an individual. And so what we're seeing, though, is you can envision if you get out of the hospital faster, it's because you're healthier, you're responding better. That translates, if you follow that to its natural conclusion, when do they get back to work? And actually, uh, you know, Goldfinch, we kind of were founded on the premise that your healthcare episode isn't just in the doors of the OR. It's when do you get your life back? And we're finding that patients are recovering uh, 32 days faster than the national benchmarks. In fact, that's why several of our clients are disability carriers uh, and stop-loss carriers, because when you can kind of help a patient get their lives back sooner, disability payments go down, healthcare costs go down, and you avoid sometimes those high-cost claims as well. So there's a lot, surgery has a big impact on a lot of, has a lot of tentacles, not just from stop-loss and, and opioid use, but faster recovery and healthcare costs and just quality of life as well. So it's all moving in the right direction. We've just kind of got to um, 
get that modern version of uh, surgery, and, and it's and it's really remarkable. Now, these um, enhanced recovery after surgery protocols, let's, let's go back then draw it back to the hospitals. Talk about the success that you've had in the last six months, where you're working, which hospitals, doctors, um, be as specific or as vague as you want. You bet. <laughs> so, no, it's a great question. So, uh, you know, the, the, when the opioid settlement started being paid out, we approached the attorney general's office and, and, uh, and, and said, you know, help us kind of remove the middleman. Let's go directly to the hospitals and help them overcome some of the challenges. You know, for instance, like coordination of the don't eat or drink, everyone in the hospital has to be on the same page that now we're telling patients drink, you know, that Gatorade two hours prior to their operation, no sooner. That takes a lot of work and they're already overworked. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, credit to the attorney general's office where they took a portion of the settlement funds and uh, pointed it towards prevention, and that's where the billion pill pledge comes in. So we are going in the state of Iowa directly to the hospitals to help them overcome some of these challenges. And part of that is, frankly, the education, the consulting of some of the advances and the nuances. It's definitely the coordination to get everybody on the same page that, hey, we're now going to be writing uh, oxycodone as an opioid, not Percocet, because we want people to be able to take more Tylenol. It's things like that that take a lot, great deal of coordination. And so we've gotten a really great response, not only from the Attorney General's office, um, Brenda Bird has done, uh, been very, very supportive of this, uh, but from the hospitals. Uh, in fact, we are, we've tried to kind of cut a, a wide swath. Six months ago, we were in our first three hospitals. Now we're launching our... Um, 13, 14, 15th this week, uh, hospitals across the state. So, you know, going from, you know, up in Northwest Iowa, from Lamar's and Cherokee and Carroll, you know, all the way down to, um, uh, you know, launching Broadlawns and Ottumwa and Mahaska and right on through Manchester and Northeast Iowa and Decatur, Mason City, groups like that, uh, and Wayne County. So you can kind of start to see where kind of all over the state and even looked at some of the counties that had some of the highest opioid prescribing. And uh, sometimes that's because they see a lot of patients that all come to a certain area, so that you would naturally see that. But there's a real ability to impact at certain hospitals uh, the fact that people are exposed to too many opioids after an operation. And by being able to uh, coordinate around these ERAS protocols, make it easy for the providers, make it easy for the hospitals, and provide nurse support from our Goldfinch nurses, Surgeons are writing dramatically fewer opioids. Therefore, they're not getting into our water supply at best. They're not getting into our medicine cabinets. And this really hits at, uh, there's one statistic I want to throw out from Oregon that shows how writing fewer opioids can impact our communities. Uh, They found that if a prescription comes into your home, if you get a prescription, your household overdose risk goes up 60%. Just for the crime, a very benign crime of getting an opioid prescription in your home, it is a dramatic higher risk of someone in your house overdosing on those. But if it is the second prescription that's come into your home within six months, the risk to your household goes up 625%. 625%. You're six times more likely someone in your household has an addiction or has an overdose if you have two prescriptions that come into your home. So that's where it impacts not just the patient, not just the hospital, but our communities. And as a longtime Iowan uh, and a University of Iowa grad, I, uh, we have a um, strong pain to make sure that we're, we're leaving this just as a better place. It's incredible stuff. Um, 
we're just so thankful that you were here to, to share that at both at the Winter Conference last year, now today at our Breakfast Club on the podcast. Our next Winter Conference, um, we're going to stay in touch closely because this message needs to get out far and wide, and it's our duty to do that um, to our membership. So how can our listeners uh, help? Yeah, very good. Thanks for uh, uh, that, that question, too, because it is uh, very important to kind of have this graph, grassroots effort. Uh, so ultimately what you can do is if you um, uh, would like to sign the Billion Pill Pledge, you can go to billionpillpledge.com. Uh, we also encourage you to talk to your hospitals. Uh, there's probably some listeners that might be board members or well-connected, and they, uh, it's, the program is entirely free to the hospitals uh, and showing um, really uh, important work to, to uh, not only drive down health care costs, but support the hospitals in these upgrades. So you can talk to them and ask them if they're participating. The more hospitals in the state that are participating, the better. And lastly, what you can do is uh, reach out to your congressperson. Uh, the opioid settlements in the state of Iowa are largely controlled uh, from the straight state legislature. Uh, they're kind of making these decisions, and they've got a lot of uh, decisions to make. And having uh, individuals reach out and letting them know that you encourage and support this as a prevention strategy. Because, frankly, what we're talking about here, too, is that first dose prevention strategy means that we're turning off the spigot of new addictions so that future settlement dollars are not diluted over people who got addicted in 2024, but that they can, they can actually go to people who are in the throes of addiction because that is a really tough road. That is an expensive. That is treatment and recovery work. They are remarkable. But we cannot overwhelm the system with them. So be, by being able to get upstream and turn off the spigot of new addictions and new opioids coming in our communities, that can have a dramatic impact and, and ultimately make sure that Iowa is a better and healthier place. How do folks get in touch with you? You can go to our website, uh, uh, goldfinchhealth.com or thebillionpillpledge.com, uh, or you can uh, email me directly at john.greenwood at goldfinchhealth.com. Or you can email me, and I'll connect you. That's right. Yeah, that's good. John, thanks for being here. Thanks for all you're doing, you and your team. Um, we're, we're excited about it, and uh, we're going to stay in touch. We're going to be close. Our membership's going to get to know you very well. Um, you know, I, I had a number of responses even to this morning saying, I saw him at Winter Conference. I wish I could make it today, but I can't. And, you know, we're, we're going to continue to put you guys in front. So thanks for all you're doing. Um, thanks, everybody, for listening today. Uh, it's been real. Thanks, Ben. Have you downloaded the MBI app yet? If you haven't, you really need to. It's our easiest way of getting information out to the members and to the public. On the app, you'll find the calendar of events, our membership directory, ways to give feedback, and even contact us on staff. We try to push all the information that we do at this association through our website and the app. So wherever you get your apps, get your phone out today and download the MBI app. Oh!